0: The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the fourth chapter. Glory to you, o Lord. Jesus said the kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself first the stock and then the head, then the full grain and the head, but When the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle, because the harvest has come. He also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up, and becomes the greatest of all shrubs, and puts forth large branches, So that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. The Gospel of the Lord. It's a big week in our house. We weathered yet another milestone in the boys' transition from childhood to adolescence. It's a tender, controversial topic, I might warn you. One that might make you uncomfortable. The subject is whether or not it's appropriate for an 11-year-old boy to still sleep with stuffed animals. (laughs) I warned you. We have one stuffed dog in particular. Named Woof Woof, given to my oldest son, Christian, even when he was still in the womb. When Jacob came along, Woof Woof was passed on to him, and lastly, to Philip. Of all the stuffed animals we've received over the years, Woof Woof has been the undisputed favorite, and this has driven me crazy, especially in my early years of motherhood, when I still had standards. (laughs) and when my OCD spirit was still optimistic. Why did this particular stuffed dog drive me crazy? For purely prejudicial reasons. I didn't like the way this dog looked. You see, the other stuffed animals were beautiful, muted shades of blue and brown and green. Teddy bears made of tweed with smart bow ties. Creamy white stuffed polar bears. Deep gray stuffed seals. These colors are all in my preferred color palette. And so I tried to influence the boys' choice in toys by surrounding them with things I wanted them to love. But they consistently consistently reached for woof-woof. Free will is a funny thing. See, Woof Woof is this garish shade of orange. One of Woof Woof's arm is green, the other is pink, one ear is purple, the other is blue. The belly is an even brighter orange, almost neon. You can't miss him, to be sure, and you can't lose him. God knows I've tried (laughs) several times to misplace or hide him. One time, the boys even pulled him glaringly out of a bag destined for goodwill. This is the beloved woofwoof, and this week, the older two boys decided that it was time for him to go. In their defense, they wanted Philip to give this little dog to their little sister on their dad's side, which is sweet and noble. Philip, though, is a tender-hearted boy, and he has struggled mightily with this. He stands poised with one foot firmly planted in childhood and the other in adolescence. He will be fine. He will not be traumatized. This is the definition of a first world problem. Nonetheless, watching this indecision regarding giving up this last remnant of childhood has been interesting and is directly related to this morning's scriptures. In an effort to offer a diplomatic solution, I asked Philip, can't you just choose something else to love? And he said, I don't choose you. I love, Mom. Yes, I realize that we are talking about a stuffed animal here, but we are actually talking about much more, are we not? We are talking about a person's very being. We're talking about the inexplicable love of the human heart. I don't choose whom I love, Mom, says my 11-year-old. Today, he is referring to a stuffed animal named Woof Woof. In years to come, he will say the same thing regarding people, male or female, I do not know, I do not care. And he will come to realize you have no more control over the people you love as an adult than you did as a child with a death grip on a beloved stuffed animal. The heart leads in matters of love, leaving intellect, reason, religion, and tradition behind. The human heart is a tender shoot, for sure, and in it resides peculiar purity, And in this respect, the Church has played its part in harming the tender human heart, especially in regards to its inclusivity or exclusivity of the LGBTQ community. The Church as a whole has left enough harm to tender shoots in its wake. It must change its ways, not because that is my personal social and political agenda, although that's true, it must change its ways because ways of inclusion and not exclusion are God's ways. That's also true. Only very recently in the history of the church has the church made progress in the arena of human love. The first openly gay bishop in the Episcopalian church was only in 2003, which wasn't that long ago. The ELCA allowed its clergy to be openly gay, and allowed its clergy to perform same-gender weddings only in 2009. These are steps, and they're great ones, but they are not solutions. The church needs to be more than an institution that passes impressive-sounding resolutions, or else we will crumble into further irrelevance. Instead, the church needs to be about working towards greater and greater inclusivity, not only in regards to human sexuality, but in every way. May we gladly, with joy, rediscover our sense of awe of the human heart, that tender seat of human love, in all of its expressions and manifestations. Our reading from Ezekiel today offers us stunning imagery in this respect, in that Ezekiel speaks of Messiah, whom Christians understand to be Jesus, as being a tender shoot whom God takes and plants on a high, and lofty mountaintop so that under his branches every bird and every creature can gather. And what more inclusive picture can Ezekiel paint than this? The tender shoot isn't planted on a high and lofty mountaintop, so that only the strong and rich and mighty and powerful can gather under its branches. Like some country club, the world does not need another exclusive country club. That's not Ezekiel's vision of God's kingdom, no. God's desire is for all to gather under the branches and find shade and rest. There is strength and power in this image, for sure. A picture of a mighty cedar tree offering shade to all creatures, but this is a different kind of strength and power than we see modeled in our world today, for sure. The Bible does not present Jesus as traditionally strong or masculine or macho, Jesus doesn't enter into human history with a mighty procession. In fact, Palm Sunday is exactly the opposite of that. Or he does not come as a tough guy or a bully. In fact, Jesus doesn't come to us in any predictably kingly way, flexing his muscles, swaggering like John Wayne. Not that there's anything wrong with John Wayne. Challenging other men to a peeing contest, measuring whose whatever is bigger than whose, whether that be an army or an appendage, Jesus doesn't do this at all. In fact, even Jesus' act of righteous aggression in the book of Mark of flipping over the tables in the temple takes on a particularly female edge if you've ever watched The Real Housewives of New Jersey. I don't. Just that one. (laughs) In short, Jesus decidedly does not embody all that is stereotypically masculine. Jesus embodies all that is completely human and does so in a shockingly tender and new way that is neither male nor female, but is entirely human. A recurring theme in the Bible is that the small become mighty. So David is anointed king while still a young shepherd. God calls Jeremiah to prophesy while still a young boy. God chooses Mary to be Jesus' mother while she is still a young virgin, and so on. There is biblical precedent for small, tender shoots growing into mighty branches in the Christian faith. We do not worship kings, Pharaoh, or Herod. Instead, we worship the one who became weak for our sake who emptied himself of life so that we might be filled with life. God consistently lifts up the lowly by becoming lowly. We worship the one who shows us this new way, ultimate power in choosing to become weak, a God who decreases so that we might increase. And what if we modeled that and how we relate to one another in our friendships, in our families, in our community, A you first instead of me first that is based less on just good morality, but on following in the footsteps of a servant God. I love this image and these scriptures for Father's Day because they show us there is a new and different way to be strong. There is the world's way of enacting strength, which says things like, boys don't cry, or man up, or which flexes its muscle through threats and coercion or oppression. There is a worldly way that won't even bake a wedding cake for two people of the same gender in the name of a Christian faith that does not represent us all. And then there is the way of Christ's strength who cries tears of compassion for the ones who are about to kill him, who prays for his enemies, who forgives an adulterous woman instead of calling for her execution, who heals a bleeding woman instead of convening a committee of men to determine the future of her uterus, who welcomes the crucified criminal next to him into his kingdom without first quizzing him on his catechism. There is another way of strength. There is a new way of strength. There is the way of the servant God, the tender shoot of Jesus who grows into a mighty tree to nest and shade and offer refuge to all people. Jesus is the tender shoot who matures into a mighty tree of crucifixion where sin and shame of the whole world dies, where love is poured out on all. There is special joy in this message for Father's Day weekend, but also Pride weekend in Iowa City, when we get to remind our fathers that Jesus embodies this new kind of strength, that there is an alternative to that popular machismo rampant in our world today. That if we look to Jesus, we see that there truly is strength in compassion. There's power and vulnerability. That fortitude of character can also include things like empathy, mercy, and forgiveness. I'm raising three boys who ask me questions like, is it okay for me to cry in public? Is it okay for me to wear a necklace under my baseball jersey that once belonged to my grandma? Is it okay for me to still love a stuffed animal? The answers are, of course, yes. And finally, how can we even speak of another way of modeling Christ-like love and a new way of strength in this world, without mentioning the horrific actions our country is taking at its southern border and the justification it is making by wrongly quoting the Bible, 2,000 children separated from their parents in six weeks. Proof-texting or cherry-picking verses from the Bible to prove one's point is a futile game for the dull You can use the Bible to justify anything you want, rape, or incest, or genocide, if you wish. The Bible has been used to keep women in abusive relationships, to legalize slavery, and to christen the atrocities of the Nazi regime. When we speak of the tender shoot of the human heart, how much more tender can we get than that of children, And furthermore, children who have left their homeland behind and who are now being torn from their parents' arms, there is no more tender and vulnerable population right now than this. The overarching biblical narrative of grace proves to us that Jesus would not rip away the infant from his mother's breast. Jesus would not divide families, sending the little ones to sleep in cages like animals, And Jesus would certainly not appreciate our using his own words to justify these actions. Jesus himself was an immigrant child, for crying out loud. Have we forgotten that? When we consider the Christmas story, actually the Epiphany story, when the kings from the east came to pay homage to Jesus shortly after his birth, Jesus' father, Joseph, was warned in a dream about King Herod's intent to kill all baby boys, thus eradicating Jesus. Mary and Joseph take Jesus and emigrate to Egypt while Herod goes on his killing spree. You remember the story. They stay there then until Herod dies, and then they return home. What if Jesus had been met at the Egyptian border by the same madness encountered at our southern border? What if he had been ripped from Mary's breast and tossed into a cage like an animal? In short, you cannot claim the Christian faith and justify these actions. Even Pope Francis said this week, you cannot be a Christian without living like a Christian. It's hypocrisy to call yourself a Christian and chase away a refugee or someone seeking help, someone who is hungry or thirsty. Toss out someone who is in need of my help. If I say I'm a Christian but do these things, I'm a hypocrite. Jeff Sessions and all of those who are biblically justifying these actions are doing so wrongly. I don't know what Bible they're reading or quoting, but it does not seem to be the Christian one.
1: When these things
0: are done in the name of Christianity, the Church suffers because our name and all that we claim and confess is publicly smeared. Families suffer devastating pain and loss. And Christ suffers because this is not God's will. When we speak of another way of strength, not the Jeff Sessions way, we speak of boldly opposing these actions, Appealing to our elected leaders, supporting partnership with the Eastern Iowa Community Bond Project and their work with the immigrant population in our own backyard with increased fervor, and publicly denouncing this fake Christianity that makes this claim that God is somehow pleased with what is going on. This is not a digression. When the Bible is quoted as people who claim that Bible, we are called to speak. These current events offer a dimension to this vision that Ezekiel lifts up before us, with Christ growing into a mighty cedar so that creatures of every kind and language and ethnicity, as well as every sexual orientation, can find safety and take refuge in his branches. Ezekiel calls to us from 2,500 years ago and says, this is the image of God's kingdom. And we need that reminder today. Oppose and challenge and subvert in the name of the weak and the oppressed, that is the work of the Christian because it is what Christ did. Today we point to Jesus, who is Savior of both male and female and everyone in between. Immigrant, Son of God, and Lord of all people, whether they know him or not, whether they confess him or not, whether they call him friend or spit on him. Jesus loves all people. We point to God the Father, creator of every living thing that creeps and crawls and walks and flies and swims as God gives evolutionary power to the earth to do its thing, whose mighty arms protect and shield and embrace and do not divide. And we point to God, the Holy Spirit, who breathes on us and stamps us each with our own unique and beautiful image of God, who delights and our diversity who calls to all people in all languages with the gospel message of love and mercy and compassion. When we speak of power and vulnerability, when we point to Jesus who laughed and loved and cried, even as we do, I'm reminded of the words from an author I like, her name is Mallory Blackman, in her book, Boys Don't Cry. There's a short little thing, I'm gonna quote. Uh, My friend Adam grinned and said to me, don't you know that boys don't cry? Shall I tell you something I've only recently discovered, I replied, not attempting to hide the tears rolling down my face, and not the least bit ashamed of them. Boys don't cry, but real men do. Jesus wept, and he was a man, and a pretty amazing one at that. He shows the strength in being the embodiment of God's complete love and dying for all people on the cross, and in offering rest and safety and refuge to all creatures in his holy branches, including little dogs I might not like because of what color they are, including your transgender neighbor, including the little child who's sleeping in a cage. Amen.